0: It's a wonderful thing to be able to have God's Word in our hands. Uh, we take that for granted sometimes, be, to be able to read and dig into it and then allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives in our uh, regular, everyday uh, living. Because God's Word is pertinent yesterday, today, and forever. The Apostle, in, excuse me, Apostle John, in writing his Gospel... Uh, makes an amazing proclamation about Jesus. He starts at the beginning of time. In the beginning was the Word. and The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Let me paraphrase that. Before the creation of the world, before Genesis 1-1 was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then if we jump down to verse 9 of chapter 1 of John, we then read, The true light, Jesus, that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, into the world that he created, according to verse 1, that he brought into being. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. Then if we go down to uh, verse, well, continue after verse 9, we jump over to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth. And John says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And that's actually the phrase that we have been expanding on over the past number of weeks as we've seen Jesus being unjustly, unfairly, and illegally tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. It began with a three-phase illegal trial by the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. The very people that Jesus came to as the light, they condemned him for the truth, calling it blasphemy, proclaiming that he was the Son of God. They couldn't execute him, however, because as we've mentioned, it's only the Roman government could do because they were the occupying government at the time. And last week we began looking at the three-phase Roman trial that Jesus had to go through, first with Pilate, then over to Herod, and then back again to Pilate. And through it all, we found something fascinating And that was how the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, was proving the innocence of Jesus. And that was necessary because he is known as the Lamb of God. You remember John the Baptist, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God. In order for a Lamb to be acceptable, for sacrifice. It had to be brought before the high priests for inspection. They would look at it very carefully and make sure that there was no blemish, no spot, no defect, nothing wrong with it. And if it passed inspection, it was allowed to be taken to the altar and slain for the covering of sin. Do you know what dawned on me this week? I don't know why it never dawned on me before, but it had not. The thought had never entered my mind. This trial process, this trial process that Jesus had to endure was the inspection process of the Lamb. And the high priests and the elders were doing their best to find a defect, to find a fault, to discredit and disallow this sacrifice. And in each step of the prophet, uh, process, he was found without blemish, without defect, without fault, innocent, the perfect Lamb of God. Last week we looked at the accusations of the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders, as we saw how each step was showing the innocence of Christ and exalting Christ. Uh, The leaders came to Pilate, and since they couldn't bring an accusation of blasphemy because the Romans didn't care about that, that was a religious thing. They concocted and fabricated other accusations, and we talked about the fact that uh, they said that he he was, uh, the accusation was of subversion, excuse me, and rebellion against Rome, and we saw that that was false. He actually taught the people to honor and treat properly the people that were in authority over them. Uh, second accusation was opposing the taxes to the government, and that was false. False, because Jesus taught to give to Caesar what was Caesar's, and as an example, he and Peter paid their taxes. Third accusation was that he proclaimed himself to be king, but that was false. It was the people that tried to make him king, and each time he wouldn't allow them to do that. But interestingly, Pilate saw through all of that and recognized it for what it was. It was coming from petty, power-hungry, money-hungry, conscienceless men. In fact, Matthew 27, 18 says, For he knew, Pilate knew, it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. And then Pilate rendered his verdict. I find, that's a verdict, I find in him no fault at all. It wasn't just no fault on these accusations, (laughs) no fault at all. I find him innocent of all charges. Then we saw how the attitude of Jesus, his silence, showed his innocence as well. I think there are actually four reasons why Jesus kept silent. One was to fulfill prophecy. Jesus always fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7 tells us, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. There was nothing to say. That's the second one. The verdict had already been rendered, not guilty. What else was there to say? Thirdly, the crowd had already been riled up by the Sanhedrin. There was no reasoning. You've seen that happen. When a, when a crowd gets, gets all riled up, there's no reasoning. There's no talking uh, to, to the group. Their minds were made up. It wasn't going to change. He didn't have to defend himself. It would have been like throwing pearls before the swine. And fourthly, and actually most importantly, it was God's will that he die for the sins of many. And Jesus was not going to subvert his own Father's will, so he said nothing. Thirdly, and this is where we pick up from last week, we saw how the animosity of the crowd actually demonstrates the innocence and the exaltation of Christ. Um, if you recall, Jesus had been through the first trial proceedings with Pilate, then passed, passed the buck on over to, to Herod, and now Pilate's got him back in his hands again. And at that point, Luke tells us in chapter 23, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and that's significant, and, and we'll come back to that in a moment, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Now remember, back in the first Jewish trial, no accusation was brought forth by the high priest Annas. They were hoping that he would say something before he was sent to Caiaphas. No accusation was coming from Pilate here. No accusation came forward from Herod. So the record of history stands that he is innocent. The innocence of Christ is being proclaimed and proclaimed and proclaimed. And at this point, it's still six in the morning. All this has been taking place. Uh, Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate again. Between five and six in the morning, um, they were in a rush. Pilate wants to get rid of Jesus. He doesn't want to deal with him or deal with this issue because he cannot afford another riot and he's afraid that's what's going to happen. But on the other hand, he's, he's struggling with his own conscience and his sense of justice. So verse 15 says, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd, At that time, they had a well-known, a notorious prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. And we'll talk about that Jesus name in a second. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? Now, you remember what I just pointed out in Luke's gospel, that he called together the chief priests and the leaders and the people. Why is that significant? Well, initially, in the first two phases, Pilate and Herod, before it comes back to Pilate again, he was talking to the Sanhedrin. This was the, the, the chief priests, the, the leaders that he was dealing with. So he decided to offer, um, but he, excuse me, he knows that Jesus is popular with the crowd. So this is important that the crowd is now there. He also knows that Jesus is hated by the leaders. So he decided to offer the people the choice between Barabbas and jesus being confident that the people are going to choose choose jesus i'm sure he thought that's what was going to take place because they hailed him as their king and their messiah and this way he'll pit the people against the leaders who he knows only are doing all this out of jealousy envy and self-interest but in verse 19 an amazing thing happened and there was an interruption i call it a divine intervention and again, we're going to come back to that second because that's my fourth point. So hang on to that, but let's jump down to verse 20 of our passage a minute. While Pilate was being distracted for a few moments, the chief priests and elders stirred up the multitude, the crowd that had begun to gather, and convinced this fickle mob to turn against Jesus, which then thwarted Pilate's plan of pitting the people against the leaders. Pilate then turns back to the people after this interruption, and we read in verse 29, uh, 21, excuse me, which of the two of you do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. And then he posed the question of all questions in verse 22. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Now it's interesting to me that he added the descriptive phrase uh, phrase, whom you call the Messiah. I think there are two reasons. I think there's a practical reason. I think there's a strategic reason. In a number of Greek manuscripts, Barabbas is referred to as Jesus Barabbas. Not in all of them, but that name is in some of the manuscripts. Now there's nothing sacrilegious about that. Jesus was a common name at that time, just like it's a common name in many countries today. So practically speaking, Pilate was differentiating between the two Jesuses. Okay, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, whom you call the Messiah. So they knew exactly who he was talking about. But strategically, I think, he was differentiating between good and evil, setting Jesus very distinctly apart from Barabbas. Barabbas, who was a criminal, he was an insurrectionist, he was a murderer, he was a plunderer, he was a bandit, And Jesus, who is called the Anointed One of God. And all that title implied to the people. He wanted to identify for them who Jesus is by definition. So that they can see the contrast. And so he asked that very, very essential question. So what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Or who is called the Christ? And you remember their answer, immediate, without hesitation, they all answered, it says, crucify him. I think Pilate was stunned. He's panicked at this point. Verse 23, why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. Beyond reason. His mind is about to (laughs) explode because he's so conflicted. In Luke chapter 23, verse 20, it says, wanting to release Jesus. This was what Pilate wanted to do. Because of his justice, his sense of fair play, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Then it says, for the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. But even at that point, he realized there's nothing else that he could do. And it says, therefore, he he says, Pilate says, I will have him punished and then release. And then release him. Why? He was trying to compromise. He was trying to appease the crowd. And you know how that works. Doesn't usually but you can't appease a bloody bloodthirsty, angry mob. They are beyond reasoning. And verse twenty three uh, says Luke twenty three twenty three, but with loud shouts they, the crowd that was there, insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. Pilate gave in. And Luke tells us in verse 24 so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, Barabbas, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Horrible, horrible decision. One that he never should have made because he knew Jesus was innocent and he had pronounced him not guilty. But there is another reason why he should never have made that decision. And that was because of the apprehension of his wife, which is actually the fourth testimony to the innocence and the exaltation of Christ. We come back now to that interruption that we kept bypassing the divine intervention which allowed the leaders to stir up the crowd. Now, to picture this, Pilate is sitting on his judgment seat. Okay, he is a judge here. He's in the middle of this trial. He's on his judgment seat, about to make a, a, a judgment. That's the judicial uh, bench, the official seat of justice that's been brought out on the porch because, remember, the Jews wouldn't go inside because they might get defiled. So he came out to them. So he's sitting on this judgment seat, out on the porch, ready to rule. And verse 19 says, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. That was very unusual. Especially for a woman in that culture, in that time. Women and even wives have been put to death for less things than that. But she sends him a message... She didn't come herself, <laughs> maybe that was part of it, but she sent a message. And she must have had a fair amount of clout with Pilate for her to do this. And his response to it indicates that she, that he, or her opinion, carried quite a bit of weight with him. And this is what the note said. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. Stop there just a second. The word she used for innocent is a very strong word, dikaios. The Greek dictionary describes the meaning of that word as righteous, upright, virtuous, keeping the commands of God, innocent, faultless, guiltless. All of that's included in that one word. Have nothing to do with that righteous, innocent man. That's a verdict of Pilate's wife. I think it's probably safe to assume that the two of them, Pilate and his wife, the evening before, had probably talked a little bit about what was going on with the Jews and with with Jesus. Um, Because remember, it was the evening before that the Jews, with all those soldiers, went to the garden to arrest Jesus. Now, they couldn't have gotten the soldiers without having talked to Pilate and gotten his permission for that. And then, in order to have a quick Roman trial at 5 o'clock in the morning... That had to be arranged too. Don't just go knocking on Pilate's door. Hey, we want a trial. Now, Pilate knew Jesus. He had no doubt heard of all the amazing things or many of the amazing things that Jesus had been doing among the people in his region. His wife, no doubt, had heard over the three years of this wonder-working man named Jesus. And his wife was convinced that this man, Jesus, wherever she got her information from, basically was a righteous man. And the point that point in itself is significant. It's incredible. Here's a testimony, amazingly enough, of a pagan. Non-believer. Didn't care about God. Didn't really care about Jesus. But a pagan was saying he's innocent. Now listen. The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel with all the prophets and all the messages of God and all the promises and all the law of God that they studied so carefully. The nation to whom the Messiah of God came first, John chapter 1. The nation of Israel curses Jesus Christ, takes his blood on themselves, which we'll look at in a moment, kills him as an unjust and evil man, and a pagan, a Gentile, (laughs) who in their minds knows nothing, says he's innocent. What a condemnation of the people of Israel at that time. And her word to her husband was, don't get involved with this man. Don't have anything to do with him. Remove yourself from the situation. You're dealing with a righteous man. She was terrified of the consequences, and rightly so. And We find out that Pilate later was, was uh, taken out of Palestine, transferred to Gaul, and there he committed suicide. The Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus says this in his writings called Antiquities of, of the Jews, and he includes in, the, in his history the following statement. Quote, Eusebius, a Greek historian of Christianity, reported that Pontius Pilate committed suicide during the reign of Caius. Eusebius records the following to us. Quote, It is worthy to note that Pilate himself, who was governor in the time of our Savior, is reported to have fallen into such misfortunes under Caius, whose times we are recording, that he was forced to become his own murderer and executioner. And thus, Eusebius says, divine vengeance, as it seems, was not long in overtaking him. Eusebius says this is stated by those Greek historians who have recorded the Olympiads together with the respective events which have taken place in each period. They recorded the same message. And uh, uh, Josephus goes on to say the quote reveals that many Greeks consider Pilate's misfortunes to be divine justice for the death of Jesus Christ. So Pilate committed suicide for the same reason that Judas committed suicide because neither of them could deal with tremendous guilt of having betrayed and dealt unjustly with the only perfectly innocent person ever. Now let's come back to Pilate's wife a minute. Where did she get her fears from? She was afraid. Verse 19 explains, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, I don't want to read too much into that phrase or that passage. There's actually nothing in the text to indicate that it was a supernatural dream or that God gave her that dream. He could have, and it might have been. Or perhaps she had been so troubled over what the Jews were trying to do to this innocent man, and she knew nothing good would come out of it for her husband, that when she went to sleep, that's where her mind went in her dreams. But when she woke up, her heart was so troubled that she had to try to do something. So she wrote this note. And I think perhaps what's even more important than where she got her dream from is God's timing in sending that messenger to Pilate. With that note, at the precise moment that Pilate had to be distracted, He had to be distracted in order for the Jewish leaders to have time to stir up the crowd against Jesus. I don't believe that was coincidence. God was working out his plan to destroy Satan and his power and to free mankind from Satan's tyranny, sin, death, and hell. And his son was the only one who could do that and nothing could stand in the way of that plan. Once again, via a dream of nightmarish agony and a testimony of a pagan Gentile, we see the righteousness of Christ proclaimed. Isn't that amazing? His innocence proclaimed and Jesus being exalted don't have anything to do with that innocent man. That leads us to our last point the acquiescence or the giving in of the governor. And here you see the innocence and exaltation of Christ come through, even in his giving in to the crowd. Verse 24 says, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, remember, that was the last thing that he wanted to happen. He couldn't afford that. But things were getting way out of hand, and a riot was imminent, and he had to get out of this somehow. Now, as I was thinking about it, i got to say, you know, Pilate gave a valiant effort here. He really did. He had tried to give, give Jesus back to the Sanhedrin. They wouldn't take him. He had pronounced him innocent. He had sent him over to Herod to get him out of his own hair uh, because he didn't want to deal with, with this anymore. He had tried and was hoping that the crowd would choose Jesus. He had tried reasoning with the crowd, telling them three times that he was innocent. There was, there was nothing that was chargeable here. Asking them why, what crime has he committed, all to no avail but he's got one last thing he can do to try to absolve himself and matthew says he took water washed his hands in front of the crowd i am innocent of this innocent man's blood now what was that all about this was actually interesting enough a jewish tradition not a roman tradition it was a jewish tradition based back in deuteronomy chapter 21 in the cities of israel in the ancient times um, if a murder took place it was the elders of the city who were responsible to do the investigation and find the perpetrator find the one who was responsible for the murder but sometimes as in today it just wasn't possible. There are unsolved crimes. And so if it turns out that they couldn't do anything about it, the elders would then come into the public place in the city and they would take out a basin of water. They'd wash their hands in front of the people. And this was a sign that even though they had done everything they could and could not find the murderer, they were free from the guilt of the murderer. They had looked as long as they could. They had done everything that they could. uh, But when it became fairly obvious that there wasn't going to be anything that else they could do to find the murderer. They just sort of washed their hands of the whole thing. That's where our expression comes from. They had given it their best and now the blood of the dead victim was no longer on their hands. So Pilate is actually taking this Jewish custom that he thinks maybe would be significant to the Jewish people that were there and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. I have no responsibility. And The Greek word he uses for innocent is the same word his wife used to describe Jesus. And that's important here. I am innocent of this dikaios' blood. I am innocent of the blood of this righteous, upright, virtuous, innocent, faultless, guiltless man. Once again, lifting Jesus up, exalting him as an innocent Lamb of God. And the crowd, including the religious leaders, were now so far gone, had become so evil because they were willingly following the lead of Satan in this process, and their minds had become so depraved that they made a statement that would affect Israel for the rest of their days on earth. Pilate had said to them, I am innocent of this man's blood, it is your responsibility. To which they replied in verse 27, His blood is on us and on our children. Listen, we need to love and pray for the Jewish people because they are still considered God's people and He loves them dearly and still has a wonderful plan for them. And I don't believe that statement that these people made reflects the attitude of every Jewish person who's ever lived in history. I don't believe that uh, it actually even reflected the attitude of all the Jewish people at the time of Christ. Or perhaps even reflected the attitude of every Jewish uh, person in that crowd. But this was the dominant cry of the crowd of that day, and it was instigated by the leaders of the nation of Israel. And the fact of the matter is, no matter how we wish it would be, the truth is that the blood of Jesus Christ was, by their own testimony, put on the people of Israel. Yes, he was executed by the Romans. And they were absolutely complicit in that. But it was a Jewish population and the leaders that screamed that his blood be accounted to their charge. We'll take the blame. Later on, you remember in the book of Acts, as the apostles went out to preach, they preached that message. They preached that Israel was guilty of the blood of their own Messiah. A crime of proportions that is so horrific, we can't even totally comprehend it or totally define it. And we know they, they preach that message because in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, preaching to the Jewish people, they said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and, and Messiah. Then when the high priests and elders heard about their preaching, they weren't real happy campers here. In Acts chapter 5, verse 27, it tells us that the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. Isn't that interesting? The same men, many of the same men who were at this illegal trial of Jesus, they were brought before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you a strict order not to teach in his name, he said yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and, listen, are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. They knew what they had said. And it started then, and God lifted his hand of blessing off the people of Israel. Forty years later, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed, and the persecution of the Jewish people has never stopped we we have constantly been under, or they have constantly been under attack by the countries surrounding them. We are well aware of the horrific things that took place in the time of the Holocaust with with Hitler. Anti-Semitism continues today, and unfortunately, we, we hear uh, hear it happening even in our own country. So so what is, is is Israel doomed forever? No, the end of the story for Israel, according to Romans will be saved in the future because God still loves His people. Which then becomes the greatest, if not the single greatest, uh, testimony of the grace of God in all human history. God is a God of grace to redeem a people who have taken on themselves the responsibility of the blood of His own Son. That's the grace of God. And that is supernatural. And so we see even in the animosity of the crowd, the beauty of Jesus Christ, so perfect. And even in this scene, he is exalted as a perfect, spotless son of God who forgives the sins of the world. Father, you remember a little bit later on, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And ever since then, there has been forgiveness for both Jew and Greek, Jew and non-Jew, for those who want to come to Christ. God's amazing grace. But they took upon themselves a blood guiltiness for Christ in his death. And in so doing, they give testimony to the whole world that it was their responsibility that his innocent blood was on their hands. Then in verse 26 of our passage this morning, we read, Then he, Pilate, released Barabbas to the crowd, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now there's one other rather shocking incident that takes place that Matthew doesn't include here. Just after Jesus was flogged and before Pilate handed him over to be crucified, There was something that took place, and that incident really kind of puts the nails in the coffin for the nation of uh, uh, Israel. And we find that over in John, John chapter 19, verse 12. And it says, From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. So they bring up that false accusation of Jesus claiming to, uh, to be king again. Trying to use that to push Pilate to force him to act. You're not a friend of Caesar. He's saying to Pilate, "You're showing complicity with an insurrection uh, insurrectionist, and we're going to report you." And he knows that if that message gets back to Caesar, he's finished. And it says, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as a stone pavement. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? And here's a statement. Listen to what they said. We have no king. But Caesar, as a chief priest, folks, the Jewish leaders in all of Israel hated Caesar. They hated Rome. They despised them for occupying their nations and making them live under horrible circumstances and oppression, having to pay exorbitant taxes. Many of their countrymen were killed. Some, some say upwards of 30,000 Jews under the Roman sword. And on and on the list can go but they had become so depraved and, and their rejection so strong that they hated Jesus more. We have no king but Caesar. Remember what the purpose of Matthew was in writing his whole gospel? It was to present Jesus as king and his kingdom. But the rejection of Jesus Christ as king was kind of the grand finale of the rejection of Israel. You know, it's one thing to say his blood is on us and our children, which then means it's going to, that that curse is going to pass down from generation to generation to generation. But to say we have no king but Caesar? Is it any wonder that in 70 AD God destroyed the city and the, and the temple? Is it any wonder that for centuries and centuries and centuries they have been under the judgment of God, except for the remnant, those few that who, have, who have called out by his grace to come to Christ? It's frightening. But they said they have no king but Caesar. That's the total rejection of Christ actually articulated. Put his blood on our account. We have no king but Caesar. And it was a truth. That's the sad part. They had dethroned Christ. John chapter 1, verse 9. He, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, came to that which was his own. But His own did not receive him. Not only did they not receive him, they rejected him, they denounced him, and they crucified him. Sad sad day in the history of Israel which has affected all the rest of the generations to this day finally John says, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified why? Jesus Christ is innocent he is exalted he is perfect he is holy all this had to take place because the Old Testament law had to be fulfilled It says that the lamb that is offered for sin must be a lamb without what? Without blemish, without defect, without spot. All of this that Jesus had to go through was to prove the suitability of the perfect Lamb of God, to die for the sins of the world. It's a monumental truth here. Six trials, three Jewish, three Roman And in each one, there either is no accusation which stands or he has been declared innocent. Not a surprise to Jesus at all. It's one of the reasons why he said nothing. You see, the Old Testament prophesies the outcome of these trials. And it declares his innocence way back in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? None of the crowd protested. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And you know, it's fascinating. The New Testament then records seven witnesses who declare and confirm the innocence of Jesus. Judas Iscariot, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed Innocent blood. Pontius Pilate, then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Herod Antipas, spoken by Pilate, neither has Herod, for he, he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Pilate's wife, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. If we jump ahead just a little bit, the dying thief on the cross, you remember, we are punished justly, he said, for we are getting what, what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. The Roman centurion at the crucifixion, the centurion seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And then the Roman guards that were with the centurion, when the centurion and those with him, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Seven times. Coincidence? I don't think so. You see, the number seven in the Bible remp- represents and symbolizes the number of completion completion, and perfection. Isn't that interesting? How then could they sentence him to death? Well, Peter tells us in Acts 2.23, it was by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And Isaiah 53 tells us that God has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. It was God's plan. So the most significant question of the whole Bible remains, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? You know, Jesus wasn't on trial here really well who was? everybody else everybody else what we do with Jesus Christ will determine our eternity forever so what are the options? well the Jewish leaders hated him that's an option the crowd rejected him being led by the hatred of others. That's an option. Herod laughed at him and mocked him, made a joke of him. That's an option. Pilate's wife, what did she do? She just wanted to have nothing to do with it, just kind of ignore him, get get rid of him. That was an option. Pilate, he tried to get rid of him. He couldn't. He chose a world and sentenced Jesus to death. That's an option. But if you are choosing any one of these options... Hating, rejecting, mocking, ignoring, putting him out of your mind. You are, in essence, crucifying Christ. Or there is one more option. There is one more option. You can accept him as the perfect, sinless, innocent Lamb of God who was sacrificed to the Father on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. Reject or accept? Those are really the only two choices that every person has. John 3, 18, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It's open. The invitation is open to everybody, but they have chosen not to believe. You see, the condemnation is not God's choice for us. It's not His will for us. God sent His Son to save and to rescue, not to condemn. The condemnation comes as a result of or the consequence of our own rejection of Jesus. By not believing, we are rejecting. But that's not God's desire. His heart breaks for each and every person in the world. For God so loved you that He gave His one and only Son that if you believe in Him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said, I have come that what? That you might have life not just basic life, not just to get along, but you may have it to the full. You may have it in abundance, full and overflowing. Folks, our God is a God of grace and a God of love, always has been, always will be. He died for you. He wants us to live for him. And if you have never made that choice for him, won't you do that today? Now, if you have made that choice, The choice for Christ sometime in your past, but have walked away. His arms are still open for you as the father's arms were for the prodigal son. He's saying, come on back. I still love you. Did you know that even if we have made a choice for Christ to be our Savior, it's possible, listen carefully, it's possible to reject him as king. It's true. Jesus not only wants to be our savior, he wants to be our Lord. He wants to be our king. He wants to be sovereign. Is he that for you today? Every time we choose to do our own thing and follow our own will and willingly disobey him, we are rejecting him as king because we are usurping his place in our life, we need to step down and give Him back the rule of our life. As John the Baptist said, he must become greater, <laughs> I must become less. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse four, 4 and 5, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise, for it was grace that bought my liberty. I do not know just why he came to love me so. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. What will you do with Jesus today? Father, this morning, we just thank you for your grace, your arms wide open for us. Perhaps there is one listening this morning that has ne- never made that commitment, that has never made, t- taken that step of faith and said, yes, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and I want to make Him Lord of my life. We, we've, been, we've been buying into the rhetoric that we hear, perhaps, around us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of our hearts. And if there is one, if there is another, who has never made that decision, this is the time to make it. Jesus says, I want to be your Savior, yes, but I want to be your Lord. I want to rule your not life, not because I'm going to be a dictator and make you do all those horrible things, but because I want to give you an abundant life. I want to direct you in your life that's going to be good, pleasing, and perfect for you and according to my will. But Father, there may be one here this morning as well, one that may be listening this morning that, who has dethroned Jesus as king in their life. Perhaps we are living in sin. Perhaps there's something that we're hanging on to that we really, we're, we're really kind of enjoying. we don't really want to give it up yet, but we know it's wrong because the Holy Spirit keeps speaking to us and, and that there is that niggling guilt that keeps happening. Father, I pray today would be a day when your Holy Spirit would say, hey, I want that area. Come to me. Ask me for forgiveness. Confess it. Ask me for forgiveness. I'll forgive you. And that way, Jesus will be putting Jesus back on the throne of our life, making him king again to rule and to reign and to guide us in our life. Father, we praise you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.